0: Welcome to the initial Pollock on Point podcast. Very pleased to have joining me today for the first ever installment of this, my former broadcast partner with the El Paso Diablos, current broadcaster for the Texas Rangers. He is Matt Hicks. Matt, how are you?
1: I'm fine. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Great to talk to you. It's been a long time since we were actually together on a broadcast, about 17 years uh, obviously, a lot to talk about with you, about your career, about your situation with the Rangers, about the game in general, but wanted to start first just talking about what it's been like for you over the course of the last three months in terms of trying to get ready for a season that you didn't know when it was going to start. It kept being delayed. You're trying to figure out what's going on, whether or not you're going to be broadcasting from home and the road just at home, whether you're even going to be in the new ballpark. So what have the last couple of months been like for you in terms of trying to get ready for a season that's very much still even uncertain at this point?
1: Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been difficult all the way around. Uh, you know, when all of this happened back in mid-March, none of us really knew anything about well, how long is this going to take and, and, and what are we going to need to do? And, and so there was so much that was up in the air. And I think the, the main concern then was just trying to be safe. And I, I think it's been that way ever since. Um, you know, During the course of um, the regular season, normally you're, you're in a routine. Uh, you do certain things at the same time every day. You try to stay as updated as possible. So in this time over the last three months, that's basically what I've tried to do is just stay as updated as possible on what's going on. Uh, you know, you, you kind of feel like if you disconnect from social media for two or three hours that you might've missed something,
0: <laughs> especially, <laughs> for sure.
1: especially with what's gone on in the major leagues, you know, over the last week or so. So that's what I try to do. I just try to stay as, as in touch with the, all of the happenings and then, you know, as far as as what we know about what we're going to do in terms of broadcasting, we know that we're going to be broadcasting, you know, in the ballpark for our home games, and for the road games, we're also going to be in our ballpark. So we're going to broadcast off of a monitor. Um, so that means that uh, Eric and I will go to the same booth every day, and just half the time there'll be a game in front of us, and the other half of the time it'll be on a TV screen.
0: You know it's interesting you mentioned the word routine and I think we all fall into being a, a victim or you know becoming a person of habit and routine and that's certainly true for players they develop a routine when they're younger work on that routine in the minor leagues and then maybe sharpen that routine in the major leagues let's talk a little bit about how the minor leagues have been impacted from the standpoint of we don't know what's going to happen for the future there's a lot of talk about maybe 42 teams potentially going away And that's going to change things in a lot of ways for players and also for broadcasters. Because unlike a player, there's not necessarily a direct path to the big leagues for a minor league radio announcer. So talk about the experience from a minor league broadcaster in terms of kind of developing that routine and what you were able to do and learn to get you ready for the opportunity at the big league level when it presented itself.
1: Yeah, well, you know, Brett, you know, you and I worked together for six seasons, yep. and that was that was six of my 23 and a half years in the minor leagues. And uh, you mentioned the 42 teams that could be contracted or, or done away with, and that kind of hit close to home because, you know, I got my start uh, in the minor leagues back in 1989 with the Frederick Keys, a, a club that had its beginning in 1989. Um, And they're one of the 42 that was on that list of teams that could possibly go away. So uh, obviously, from a sentimental standpoint, uh, I didn't enjoy seeing that. But, you know, when that Frederick team uh, came into being, that's what gave me the opportunity to get into the game. Um, Prior to that, I had applied to a number of minor league teams in baseball and, and, and also in some other sports. And I just wasn't getting any kind of response. And the reason I wasn't getting any kind of response is because even at that level, you know, the Frederick team plays in the Carolina League, that's the advanced A level, which is not the lowest level in the minor league. Um, but at, at, at even at those lower levels of the minors, they want somebody with experience. Mm-hmm. And so here I am applying to all of these different minor league franchises, and I had zero professional experience in terms of professional baseball. And so I kept getting turned down for jobs, and then the only way that I was able to land that Frederick job was because uh, I had previously uh, made a connection with a general manager in minor league baseball whose team was going to be moving from uh, Massachusetts to Southern Maryland, and at the time I was working in Southern Maryland, so I was courting him thinking that, okay, well, if you come into my backyard, maybe I can be the broadcaster for that team. And then that was kind of all lined up and ready to go three years before the Frederick job opened. But then that team didn't come to Southern Maryland. They ended up going back um, to actually Kinston, North Carolina. The GM had come from a team in Massachusetts, but I had made that contact. And so when uh, when my career was kind of stalling out and I was getting all of these... um, you know, uh, rejections from these minor league teams. I called him up uh, to just to find out if there was anything going on, and he informed me of the new team going into Frederick. Well, when the when the new team was going into Frederick, I, I knew some other people in the broadcasting industry that had worked in Frederick, so I just started making a whole bunch of phone calls. Ended up getting an interview, and and I was lucky enough to be the one that they selected from uh, a candidate pool of about 200 uh, candidates. So. You know, getting into the game and getting a start is not easy. And had that Frederick team not come along in 1989, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be where I am today.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I really enjoyed uh, in the minor leagues, and I guess I was trying to maybe get you to talk a little bit more about this, was in terms of being around the players, learning how to talk to them, learning how to kind of siphon information from them, and also Getting over that hurdle of walking into the clubhouse, maybe being a little fearful, maybe being a little nervous and trying to learn how to develop the relationships that you need to with the coaches, with the manager to gain information, to make the broadcast more insightful and more informative and really kind of learning the rhythms of the day to day of the game itself between Everything that happens, let's say, in a game today that has an effect on the game tomorrow, how to cope with travel. So talk a little bit from that standpoint as well in terms of, you know, getting over the hurdle and learning the rhythms of the game on a daily basis and what you needed to do to prepare and to be at your best just like a player.
1: Yeah, Brett, thanks for reminding me how terrible I was at the beginning of my career at that. <laughs> you
0: <one. laughs> and me both.
1: <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, because, you know, one thing, I, I ended up getting in late. So I got that start in Frederick in 1989. I was 28 years old. And by that time, certainly you formulated some opinions about, you know, how the game of baseball should be played and what you know about baseball as a fan and, and whatnot. And, and what I came to realize early in that first season was is that I really didn't know anything. And I was fortunate because my manager in 1989 was Jerry Marin, who had played in the big leagues. And um, it was his first year as a manager and or coach in the minor leagues. He had ended his playing career uh, the previous year with the Orioles in AAA in Rochester. And I learned so much from Jerry about all of that that you talked about. And I was fortunate to get a chance to talked with him a couple of days before the season got started in 1989. And we connected on a number of personal levels. Um, my, uh, my father's family is from the state of North Carolina. Jerry uh, was from Goldsboro, North Carolina. So we had some commonalities there. And once he realized that, you know, I was uh, the radio broadcaster doing my job, just trying to find out more about him and that we had those things in common, then he started to open up. And During the course of the season that year, um, Jerry and I would go out to lunch quite a bit on the road. And so I learned quite a bit from him there. And then, you know, I had no idea, none whatsoever, about the daily rhythms you talk about uh, in baseball, which, you know, those rhythms are fairly uh, similar in in the minor leagues as they are in the big leagues. Obviously, the travel is a little bit different. We're always on buses pretty much in the minor league. But uh, I I, I learned quickly to adapt to that rhythm of the day as to uh, when you have access to players. Um, I was fortunate in that um, the guys welcomed me right away. So I would actually, early in my career when I was in Frederick, I I was able to do stuff that you can't do now in the big leagues. I would actually go down for batting practice and shag on the field. Um, and I would talk to guys in the outfield during BP and find out information in a rather informal setting uh, in that way. There were times I actually took part in BP as a hitter, if you can believe that. Um, and there were, there were other times during my time in Frederick where because we had maybe one guy that wasn't able to throw BP on a certain day or um, whatever the case was, that I had players ask me personally, hey, can you come down to the cage with me and toss me some BP, either, you know, real BP or some, you know, just a uh, short toss or whatever. Uh, and so you get to, you know, find out more about the players like that. And, and Brett, you know this, having been in the game so long too, uh, you really do find out more about the individuals that, that you're covering when you're on the road as opposed to when you're at home because your at-home routine um, is so much different from your routine on the road. And on the road is when you have more access uh, to the players and to the coaches, Uh, you're able to share quite a bit. And so that ability to um, establish a relationship where the, the players and the coaches and the managers know that they can trust you with information, they can give you information that they know will not get out, but it's information that helps you to become a better broadcaster. And Um, So I I had to learn that really quick uh, in that first year. And of course, I I should probably mention uh, when I was uh, doing those seasons in Frederick, I wasn't just the uh, play-by-play broadcaster for the baseball team. I was actually an employee of the radio station. So I had morning drive uh, sports uh, responsibilities on both an AM and an FM station. So that schedule was much different than just when you work for a baseball team and you go through the the rhythms of the day in baseball.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that in terms of if you are an employee of the team at the minor league level, in many cases, especially when you're home, as you mentioned, it's very different because maybe you're still trying to sell tickets and or sponsorships early in the season. You're dealing with servicing your clients and maybe some fires come up in the office that you have to deal with. So from that standpoint, how much better is it? How much easier is it at the major league level when you don't have to worry about all that and you can just focus on the one thing that you've always wanted to do and that's show up and talk about baseball
1: <laughs> that's that's very true because there were you know and the thing of it is is in the minor leagues if people don't realize this maybe i can give it some scale uh because you know you and i worked at the double a level together for six years i worked over 17 seasons um at the double a level uh and i i never had the opportunity to work at the triple a level but it's very similar Double-A and AAA front offices usually have full-time employees between about 20 and 30, maybe as many as 35 employees. Uh, in the major leagues, uh, your full-time front office employee numbers are more between 200 and 300. So you probably have 10 times the number of people working in a major league front office that you than you do in a minor league front office. And so what that means, as you can imagine, is the radio broadcaster, as you mentioned, is not just the broadcaster but is almost assuredly doing some kind of sales work associated with the club, not necessarily selling radio time, but selling other kinds of sponsorships. But um, that radio uh, play by play guy is also somebody who probably has something to do with the team's publications, be it the uh, scorecard program or yearbook or whatever it is that the team puts out in that regard. And certainly uh, since the advent of the internet, and teams, you know, being very active on the internet, uh, producing content for your website became another uh, job description of the radio play-by-play individual. So, you know, I had to do all of that in the minor leagues. And now uh, being in the major leagues, you're right. Somebody else handles all of that other stuff. Now, we have to, you know, from time to time, we have to, to go out in public and and we are engaged with speaking to members of the public in a variety of ways. Uh, uh, I go on caravan visits. I will um, host banquets and uh, other events that the, the rangers sponsor. I do get to go out and, and meet with sponsors, but it's just it's not the same in terms of time commitment. That's, uh, you know, 90 of what I do is prepare for and broadcast the games on the radio.
0: Matt Hicks, one of the radio voices of the Texas Rangers, our initial guest on Pollock on Point. Let's transition a little bit now from going from the minor leagues to the major leagues. Unfortunately, there were some unforeseen and unfortunate circumstances that led you to getting the opportunity at the big league level with uh, Dave Barnett unfortunately having some health problems on air you mentioned double a AA and triple a when i was in triple a in omaha one of my great pleasures in talking to players was finding out from them what it was like when they got the call telling them that they were going to the big leagues for the first time, and then what it was like for them to live out that dream when they put on that uniform and walked onto the field for the first time as a big leaguer. So what was it like for you when you found out in the 2012 season, because, of again, this unfortunate circumstance, that you were going to the big leagues? And then what was it like for you when you sat down in the booth, got behind the microphone, and as potentially a full-time broadcaster for the first time, got to call big league games in 2012?
1: Yeah. So uh, I'm not too sure.
0: where We ran into a couple of technical issues, but we're back. And we were just talking with Matt Hicks about when he finally found out that he was getting the call from the Texas Rangers during the 2012 season, what his reaction was to getting that call and then, sitting down behind the mic and realizing that he had the opportunity to potentially become a full-time big league broadcaster. So Matt, if you want to pick it up from there, uh, feel free.
1: Okay. So um, yeah. So uh, that was an unfortunate uh, occurrence with the Dave on the television side for the Rangers uh, back in June of of 2012. And, And when that happened, I actually got phone calls and contacts from friends of mine saying, Hey, are you going to contact the Rangers? They may need somebody. And my response to that was, no, <laughs> you know, I have no idea what's going on there. Um, you know, and I, I already had, you know, contacts in, in the Rangers uh, front office. But I said, I'm, I'm not that, that that kind of guy. I'm, I'm not going to call and say, hey, I'm available when there was nothing that was available. You know, you presume that uh, things were going to be uh, working out. But as it turned out, I was working at the time for the AA Corpus Christi Hooks. Uh, which at the time was owned by Ryan Sanders Baseball, the Ryan part of that being Nolan Ryan, who at the time was also president on the uh, business side of things for the Texas Rangers. And so it was not immediately after that incident, uh, which happened when the Rangers were in San Diego, but it was over a week, maybe two weeks later, that my family and I, we were on vacation. The uh, Ryan Sanders group had decided a couple of years prior, that I could take a series off, one series off every year to go on vacation because my wife, being a full-time teacher and the baseball season, you know, there was no time that we could go on a family vacation. And I had asked him if we could do that. So I was actually with my family in Carlsbad, California at Legoland. (laughs) Our our son at the time would have been uh, 10 years old. And so we had planned this trip to Legoland. And it was a five day excursion and we were in the middle of that trip. We were on the third day and my boss, Nolan Ryan's son, Reed Ryan called my cell phone, but at the time, and it was in the morning on what I believe was a uh, Monday morning. Um, my son was on my phone playing fruit ninjas. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, and he's looking and he sees Reed Ryan's name pops up. And my son knows that Reed Ryan is daddy's boss. And he's contemplating giving me the phone because he's got such a high score on Fruit Ninjas and he didn't want to interrupt it. So uh, he finally realized I better give this to dad. And so he handed me the phone and uh, Reed uh, proceeded to talk to me for about 10 minutes and finally said, hey, we, we need you to come to uh, to Arlington. He said, we don't know for how long, Um, but at the time, Reed didn't know that I was on vacation in Carlsbad. He thought that I was with the Corpus Christi team, which at the time was playing the Ranger AA affiliate, Frisco, which is just about a 45 minute drive from the ballpark in Arlington. So he thought that I could just hop in a cab and get to the ballpark. And I told him, I said, Reed, I'm out in the San Diego area right now. I can't I can't get to the ballpark. And so for that brief moment, I thought, oh, my goodness, here's a chance to do a few big league games. And I'm not going to get to do it because I'm on vacation with my family. Are you kidding me? Um, But we talked it out. And he said, well, I asked him, I said, well, do I need to leave right away? He goes, no, go ahead and finish your vacation. He said, but we'll get you to uh, Arlington on whatever day that was. And so uh, I ended up I ended up flying to Arlington on a Friday And did did my first broadcast on a Saturday, which would have been the third game of a four-game series uh, against Oakland. And I'm glad that that they got me there a day beforehand to take in the entire, you know, uh, atmosphere where where I didn't have to, you know, have any duties on the broadcast or anything. I could just observe. And the next day I was able to go in. And, yeah, you know, clearly there there are nerves involved. And you think about your journey all the way up to that point. But I think the, the, the one thing that um, helped me out was the uncertainty of it all. I didn't know how many games I was going to have an opportunity to do. Uh, and because of that, it kind of felt like uh, an audition. And so clearly, you know, I wanted to be the best that I could be. But here I am joining a team in the middle of a season, a year after they had gone to the World Series back to back. And in the middle of that season, at the end of June, Uh, The Rangers were, again, well on their way to just trouncing the American League West. They were playing very well at the time. So I spent those few days prior to getting to Arlington studying up on the team. But in my mind, I didn't know if I was going to do two games or five games or a week's worth or two weeks worth. So it was just, you know, cram as much information as you can about the Rangers. Because, again, as a broadcaster in Corpus, I was uh, we were an affiliate of Houston Astros. So I didn't really know all that much about the Rangers. So I just tried to pack as much homework in as I possibly could. And I think I was just concerned about the work. And then I told myself, you know, it's a baseball game. It's played on the same kind of field. Yeah, there are a lot more people watching. And certainly there are a lot more people listening. But don't think about that. Just do what you need to do in your innings to complement Eric Nadel, who you know, since I joined the club uh, as a Ford Frick winner, I, I joined the team in 12 and he ended up winning the Ford Frick award in 2014. So I knew that he was a legend uh, in these parts. And so I just told myself, just just be yourself and do what you can do to augment uh, what what Eric already is, which is a Hall of Fame broadcaster, and you'll be fine. And, and literally I went, uh, we did those two games of the, the final two games of that four-game series with Oakland, we then went to Chicago for a three-game set against the White Sox, and then came back home. And it wasn't until we got back home for my second uh, series of games at home that I found out that uh, the Rangers said, "Okay, well, we're going to uh, we're going to keep you on for the rest of the season." Um, and so that allowed me to relax a little bit, but you know, I still didn't know if that that was going to be all that it was. Uh, you know, my, my status as an employee with the minor league team was still kind of, well, exactly, how do we handle this? And so there was there was so much that was still up in the air, but then following that uh, that 2012 season, I got a full-time offer from the ball club. So I suppose, in looking back on it, it was an audition of sorts, but, you know, you there, there was just a lot that was out there that wasn't known, and I just tried to do what I knew that I could do as a broadcaster.
0: And how different was that from your experience sitting next to Bob Uecker filming Major League Two?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it this way. When, when I was an extra seated next to you in, in that movie, I didn't have to do any work. I just had to do what the directors and the other people on set told me to do. And he had to do all the work. It was funny because when uh, when we were filming – You know, Bob was great at delivering his lines, and you know he's so good—not just as a broadcaster, but at at comedy and at comedic uh, timing—that it was it was very cool to be able to sit there and watch him work. But when we were not shooting, which, of course, if you've ever had the opportunity to be on a movie set, that's most of your time. um, He was buried in the script and trying to memorize his lines and um you know didn't want to be bothered uh, which you can understand if you know you're the the scenes that I was involved in he was the star of the show so everybody just tried to uh, you know give him his space and uh, I had the opportunity though uh, during some of that downtime when he wasn't studying the script that he would engage me in conversation because he knew I was a minor league broadcaster and we would talk about the minor league game and certain players and uh, that was a very interesting weekend in Baltimore uh, that we shot all of those scenes, all of Euchre's scenes for Major League Two.
0: And that leads a thread to uh, Milwaukee with Bob Euchre. He's been a broadcaster there for 50 years. On the TV side is Brian Anderson a mutual friend of ours from our days in the Texas league, when he used to pump country music into our headphones from the field, mic. Uh, but recently, and he's gone on to great success. And I'm sure we're both very proud of him. Uh, but I saw an interview with BA recently where he talked about the influence of a Marty Brenneman and a Vince Scully on his career. You mentioned Eric Nadel being in the hall of fame. You've worked with him now for eight plus seasons. How much of an impact, how much of an influence has he had on you as a broadcaster at the major league level?
1: Well, there's no question that he's had a, a great deal of influence just getting to watch him work. Uh, the, there's so many things that, um, that I've taken from Eric, and, and one of those things is that Eric, first and foremost, thinks about the fan. He thinks about not just himself when he was a baseball fan, but Texas Rangers fans and baseball fans in general, and he thinks, what would they find interesting about today's game? Uh, and so that's how he prepares. That's how he starts his day preparing. Um, what about today's game in the context of the American League West, in the context of the American League, and the context of Major League Baseball overall? What's most interesting today? and What's most interesting? It might not be something associated with the Rangers. It might be some other element of the game or some other topic that's come up. But um, that's how Eric starts his, his day of preparation. What, what are the most interesting things that are going to happen in baseball today? Um, <clears throat> pardon me. What are the most interesting things that are going to happen with the Texas Rangers today? Um, and one of the other things that Eric does, that uh, it, it took me a while. In fact, I don't know if I've even caught up to him in, in this regard. But obviously, in Major League Baseball, your opponent changes more frequently than it does in the minor leagues. You know, when you and I were together in El Paso, we only had seven other opponents, and we kept seeing three of them all of the time. Well, in the big leagues, you know, you get to see teams a a little bit more frequently and a lot of different teams as opposed to just a handful. Um, But Eric will prepare for an opponent about a week to two weeks in advance, where, for the most part, for me, I usually prepare for the next opponent, but He's two or three series ahead and looking at interesting things related to that particular club at that time that we're going to be playing them. So um, he's, I think he's rather unique in in that regard where uh, it's not just numbers and statistics and um, that hardcore stuff with him. It's human interest stories. It's, um, a perspective on history, it's so much. And that's why he's able to paint a picture with a really broad brush because he does so much homework that I think goes beyond what you know a lot of guys consider daily preparation.
0: Yeah, and he's so conversational too. And you touched on a couple of topics I wanted to further explore with you in your answer to that question. But before we do, I want to take one step back since we're talking about someone who is in a hall of fame, Eric Nadell. You are also in a hall of fame on a bit of a smaller scale, but In 2016, you were inducted into the El Paso Sports Hall of Fame, 11, 12 years after you had last been there. What was that honor like for you? What was it like going back to El Paso and seeing a lot of old familiar faces and kind of seeing yourself be enshrined in history there?
1: Yeah, it was very emotional. Um, You know, the person that that hired me, the people that hired me when I first got out there in 1995 were the people that resurrected that franchise and made that franchise one of the more marquee franchises in the minors and it's uh, Jim Paul and his sister, Karen Paul. Karen is the person who actually hired me, but Jim was running the franchise at the time. And then after my first two years there, Jim sold the franchise uh, to the group that uh, you were involved in. And that's what got you to uh, El Paso diamond sports. Um, But it was very humbling because Jim led the, uh, the charge to, to, to get me into the El Paso baseball hall of fame. And, and going back there, I did get a chance to see a few people that uh, were around at that time. Uh, one of the one of the players uh, in that era, uh, when I was there, was there not as a, a fellow inductee, but um, somebody that uh, had been involved in baseball in El Paso forever because he played high school baseball there, and he played for the Diablos a couple of seasons, Lauro Felix. I don't know if you recall that name. Yes. Yeah. Um, but but uh, Lauro was there, and, and then uh, our good buddy, Miguel Flores.
0: That's right. Uh made,
1: <laughs> Miguelito. Miguelito made Miguelito made the trip from Miami wow. to be there for that and I thought that that was uh, kind of neat. And there was another individual that was in the front office there for a good uh, chunk of the time that uh, that I was there that she is now a she's a principal I believe at a middle school in the El Paso area. Corey Vasquez, I'm sure you remember. Uh she was there. And so there were uh, a a few people. Jim Paul was there. His wife, Connie, was there. And a few other people from my time in El Paso were there. So it was kind of special. I was inducted with four other uh, individuals. And uh, it was a very humbling experience. You know, when I think of my time in El Paso from 1995 to 2004, there was a lot that happened. Uh, You know, during that time, I got got married. Uh, Our son, Nathaniel, was born there in 2001. My wife had to undergo... Uh, breast cancer treatments when, when we were there. So all of that came back. And I actually addressed that uh, in going in and, and how uh, how good the people of El Paso were to us and how many friends we made when we were out there. Um, so it was I, more than anything, it was just a, an emotional reflection on a part of my journey in the game and my journey in life. And uh, I, I, I may have cried uh, quite a bit for the 48 hours that I was out
0: there. All right. So let's now fast forward to the time in the major leagues, especially since we were just speaking about Eric Niedel, because you once said to me that wherever he goes on the road, whatever restaurant or whatever other place it is, everybody knows him, everybody reveres him. And he's taught you also about some places on the road. I know that you're a foodie. You definitely like to eat and enjoy your food. So give me an idea maybe of some of your favorite cities, Uh, that you like going out and exploring and eating in when you're on the road in the big leagues?
1: Well, since you, since you mentioned Eric and, and going out, it's not like we uh, go out and eat all the time, but we we will go have lunch from time to time. And if we have an off night, maybe dinner from time to time. But uh, I'll mention that Eric's favorite restaurant on the planet is located in San Francisco, and it's a place that he found, I think, maybe his first or second year when he was with the Rangers, 1979, 1980. Um, he walked into a dive Chinese restaurant, and that restaurant has grown into about, I think, six locations in the San Francisco area. It's called Henry's Hunan. And um, we always, anytime we go out to play Oakland or on the very rare uh, times that we go out to play the Giants, uh, there's always one visit to Henry's, and so that's something that's... That's always on our uh, docket. And it really is. I mean, you know, we have the opportunity to travel all over the United States and and Canada as well. And Henry's really is probably the best Chinese restaurant I've ever uh, eaten at. So there's there's one right off the top. But in terms of cities, you know, San Francisco stands out when when the Rangers travel to play Oakland. We stay in San Francisco. It's a short BART ride on the subway uh, over to the Coliseum. But uh, San Francisco is one of those cities that has a number of uh, great restaurants of uh, all ethnicities. Uh, But, you know, New York is a great place to go for eating. Chicago might be my favorite city as far as uh, great restaurants are concerned. And then, you know, add to that uh, Seattle and Toronto, um, two other cities that just uh, have a fabulous restaurant scene and, you know, a lot of different foods that uh, I had not been exposed to prior to getting into the big leagues. Uh, You can, you can find in all of those places. And
0: which big league parks are your favorite to dine in?
1: To dine in. Well, that's different from broadcasting. Yeah. So to dine, to dine in Yankee stadium might be uh, number one. Um, Their, their media dining probably is unmatched uh, for a while there, uh, Kansas City Kauffman Stadium was giving Yankee Stadium uh, a run, so uh, they're pretty high up on the list as well. And um, I think I've covered all of the major league ballparks except for one, which is Philly. Right. Brett. interesting. Philly's the only. It's the only ballpark that I haven't been to. Wow. The Rangers were supposed to go to Philadelphia in April this year, so that obviously got uh, you know thrown out. Uh, so I've not been to uh, Philly since my time in the big leagues. But I'd say for uh, for, for for media dining that uh, New York and Kansas City are one and two. All
0: right, we talked a little bit about um, what it was like for you when you got the call to fill in at the major league level and you know, what it's like to kind of fulfill that dream both for players as well as a broadcaster. So you just mentioned Yankee Stadium. What was it like for you, let's say, at the three cathedrals going there for the first time to broadcast, Yankee Stadium, Fenway, and Wrigley Field.
1: So Yankee Stadium, uh, you're just going to get me to talk about all these times that I've cried in baseball, right? That's, that's the goal here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's why I'm here, Matt.
1: <laughs> so, Yankee, so, so Yankee Stadium, the, the first time that the, I went there, the, uh, the booth there, and you know this, is not a very big booth in terms of width. It's no. kind of tight and cozy. Uh, In terms of it being a long booth, you have to walk a ways from the door to get to the front. Uh, So there's plenty of room for the uh, broadcast engineer. But I walked in and I get to the front. Obviously, you know, we get to games, um, whether it's home or on the road. We usually get to games about four hours in advance. So it's about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I get there and I'm by myself and I'm looking out at the field and looking out. At Yankee Stadium. And uh, the first person that I thought to call was uh, a brother-in-law of mine, who uh, is a huge baseball fan, uh, lives in Florida, uh, was actually a a politician for a while and uh, was involved in the building of the uh, Mets Spring Training Complex in uh, St. Lucie, uh, but grew up a Yankee fan. And my father-in-law, who passed away back in 2008, Uh, was a huge, huge Yankee fan. And so I thought that the first person that I needed to share being in the booth with was my brother-in-law, who was such a big baseball fan, to talk about the the love of baseball that he shared with his dad and how much it would have meant to my father-in-law knowing that I was going to be broadcasting a game from Yankee Stadium. And so, you know, we shared that emotional moment um, and it was very special because um, I talk about this with my wife often. Uh, it's it's too bad that uh, my father-in-law didn't get a chance to live to uh, hear me broadcast a major league game, but that was that was my first experience with Yankee Stadium. Uh, Fenway Park um, was uh, rather unique. Now I, I I don't have any connection to Boston. Um, or, or any history with Boston, but that is such a unique ballpark, and located in such a unique neighborhood, that you know your senses were just bombarded. My my first day there, I, I I'm not sure I was able to absorb it all because there was so much uh, that was going on, uh, and uh, that's a unique broadcast pr- perspective as well. Because you get, you get a sense that you're really high up, but in reality, you're not. It's a great place to uh, call a game. And I love doing games from uh, Fenway Park. I think I'm probably more a fan of Fenway than I am of Yankee Stadium in terms of calling a game. And then it wasn't right away, obviously, uh, Wrigley Field because they're in the National League. But I believe that we got to go to Wrigley in my first full season uh, in the big leagues. And that was such a throwback. It was, it was even older than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> because that was, you know, and, and in all of these ballparks, as a broadcaster, that was my first time there. I had never been there as a fan uh, in any of those. And the broadcast booth for the visiting uh, radio uh, team uh, at Wrigley is terrible. It's absolutely, I don't know what, how else to describe it other than it's terrible, it's tiny, uh, it's literally like, and, and people joke about it, it's literally like what you would think getting into a space capsule would be like, because there's just room enough for two folding chairs. And when Eric and I are in there, we're almost seated hip to hip. I mean, we're we're that close. So there's not a lot of room and the engineer is right above you, but he doesn't have uh, a whole lot of room. And then that, that first year we were there, it was so cold we were playing in upper 30 and 40 degree temperatures. And in the booth, it felt like it was 12 degrees. It was just <laughs> so miserable there, but you, um, you get over that misery knowing that you're in such a an historic cathedral, as you put it. And when you, when you go there and, and my first time there, I, I walked around and we were able, Eric and I were able to get down on the field actually and, this doesn't happen many places, but we were able to walk around the warning track mm-hmm. and see the ivy. And at that oh, awesome. time of the year in April, there was no ivy. Right. It was, right. it was, you know, it was just vines. And it's like, but this doesn't look nice, and this looks, <laughs> this, this actually looks awful if you're a player and you have to go back into this. This is, this doesn't look like a lot of fun at all. But once you get people in that ballpark and the atmosphere, it's just, it really is uh, tough to match. And then we had the good fortune to be able to go back there again in 2016 but we played more in the middle of the season when the ivy looked better and it was warmer and it was just a great atmosphere and and Wrigley is similar to Fenway in that it's in a neighborhood of Chicago Uh, you know it's not set aside on some big piece of land that isn't close to where people live you're right you know in that north side neighborhood of Wrigleyville you know what, what it's called and it's just neat to walk around the neighborhood there so Um, it's hard to beat the the experience of going to a game as a fan at Fenway or Wrigley, uh, but it's very easy to beat the experience of actually being in the broadcast (laughs) at Wrigley.
0: Let's transition and talk a little bit about the new ballpark in Arlington, because that was scheduled to open up this spring. Obviously, that's been postponed, at least from a baseball perspective. And and obviously, we're not sure how it's going to play yet because there haven't been any games there. But let's look at the bigger picture in terms of with a dome, with the synthetic turf, how much will it mean potentially down the line when we return to a sense of normalcy, when fans can come back into the ballpark, for the Rangers to be able to play in a place that might be able to help them Attract other ballplayers, free agents to come there and play, and then also, as well, to um, spur growth in and around the ballpark and be a revenue driver in that area of Arlington?
1: Yeah. So I think, um, first and foremost, the Rangers, who, of course, came to Arlington in 1972 from Washington, D.C., their history has been one of not being able to attract quality pitchers. Now, they have had some some very good pitchers throughout their history, but uh, the Rangers as a franchise have not been known as a pitching rich franchise. They've been known more as a power hitting offensive type ball club. That's had to outscore teams in their history, but having a retractable roof ballpark where you are climate control. And so you'll have the roof open if it's, you know, comfortable weather, but if it's like it is today, you know, here in Arlington, 99 degrees, Uh, You'll close that roof and you'll play in 72 degree comfort. Knowing that, I think that that probably means that a lot of pitchers who in the past uh, may have been dissuaded from considering an offer from the Rangers might now think, you know what, that could be a nice place to be. Uh, The other thing that could be adding to that, and you're right, we're not going to know until we actually get a decent number of games under our belt, how this ballpark is going to play and, of course, in any ballpark that has a retractable roof, they usually play differently if the roof is closed compared to when the roof is open. But the times that some of our guys have had a, uh, an opportunity to go in and take batting practice in there, and, and basically they're just trying to hit home runs, uh, the uh, the batters have all said, um, you know, J.D., can we move the fences in some? Uh, this is, uh, <clears throat> you know. In, in batting practice, major leaguers don't usually have difficulty hitting home right. runs, and apparently our guys were having some trouble. So, our hitters, I think, think that our ballpark is going to be more of a pitcher-friendly park. But again, it remains to be seen. You know, it could end up being a neutral park. It could end up being like the other parks have been in Rangers uh, history. It could end up being a hitters' park. We just don't know. But I get the sense that because it's going to be climate-controlled, that more quality free-agent pitchers will not be so reticent to field an offer from the rangers
0: let's talk a little bit about the division i think i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you about the situation with the astros during the offseason it was maybe the number one topic in the game about the sign stealing allegations and what they had done over the last couple of years you see them 19 20 times a year half of those games in Texas, half of those excuse me, half of those games in Arlington, half of those games in Houston, could you get a sense? Did you have any sort of awareness of what might be happening that maybe the Astros were benefiting from doing something a little bit more outside the line, so to speak, and maybe a little bit more than what is generally accepted as customary sign stealing in the game?
1: Well, let's start off with the trash game stuff. Um so I don't ever recall broadcasting a game down there hearing Uh, the drum beat or the beating of a trash can. I just don't remember it. But then again, you know, we're so focused on our job that it's it's not something that we would even think to listen for or to look out for. Now, having said that, um, I can remember on a handful of occasions, not every day uh, from broadcasting down there, but there seemed to be certain games, like maybe two or three games a season, um, that during the commercial break, I would lean over to Eric and say, You know, it it doesn't matter what our guys are throwing. It seems like their hitters are on everything. And when, when you see that, at least up until this point, my first thought wasn't, well, the Astros must be cheating or the Astros must be stealing signs. My first thought was, holy smokes, these guys have done a terrific amount of homework and they know what to expect in certain counts. And I think that maybe naively... We um, take a look at all the work, and, and you know, and there are a lot of teams and a lot of individuals that put in a terrific amount of homework at studying things like, okay, what is the what is the tendency of this pitcher? What is what does he usually throw at one and two in the count? What does he usually throw at two and zero oh in the count? And guys are armed with this information now because there are a lot of other people whose job it is is to provide that information, and so I think you know, initially when I would make those comments, like, man, it seems like those guys know what's coming. It was more of a um, a congratulatory comment to the Astros for doing their homework. Now, obviously, it's tainted uh, knowing what we know. But I never really thought that, that something was amiss while we were down there, while they were doing uh, so well against us. But when you think about it, you know, there were certain at-bats where Guys would, you know, foul off all kinds of pitches um, and then, you know, put a ball in play and put it in play hard. And then you take a look at some post-game statistics and you find out that against a guy who may have been pitching for us, and may have been pitching pretty well, at least by what our eyes told us, and yet he only got two swings and misses in the game. You know, maybe we should have paid more attention to stuff like that.
0: Let me also ask you about Mike Trout. Again, you get to see him 19 times a year here on the East Coast. We very rarely ever get to see him. He hasn't been in the playoffs since 2014, three-time MVP. He's finished runner-up four times and maybe could have won MVP in those four seasons as well. For those who don't get to see him on a regular basis, clearly he's the best player in the game. But just how good is this guy?
1: <laughs> he's very good. Um You know, it's, it's almost, it's funny um, when we do games with the angels and I, we get the lineup, we get the angel lineup more often than not here in recent years, he's been batting second in the order. If we get an angel lineup where he's hitting third in the order, I feel better. (laughs) And, and I, I feel better because we have an opportunity to get two outs before trout comes to bat. If he's batting second in the order, it's like, man. We're only going to get one out, <laughs> and but but you worry but you worry more seeing him second in the order about potentially that fifth time up in exactly. the ninth inning. You know, you know because how many how many times you know early in Trout's career was he batting third in the order, and uh, the game ended with Trout being on deck. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as to what that number is, but uh, I mean you just know that if you make a mistake to Mike Trout, you're going to get punished, and rare is the time that Mike Trout puts the ball in play where he's not putting the ball in play with a a really high exit velocity. So he's clearly the best in the game. Now, having said that, you know, he still has a few holes. He doesn't have many, but he has a few holes and pitchers that can really execute and can pinpoint their location, um, and are good at disguising their release point, their delivery, um, they can get him out. It's not like you can't get him out. Um, you can get him out, but um, you you have to be you have to be a very good big league pitcher in order to get Trout out. And and you know, and Trout is obviously like most other guys in the game, trying to drive the ball out of the ballpark. He's trying to hit the ball hard, so he is prone to the strikeout, and he will strike out. But he also you know he's so feared, and guys are trying to be so fine that he also walks a whole lot. And you would rather just put him on base knowing he's only getting one base and the angels are only getting one base as opposed to pitching to him and knowing that it could easily be four bases. And, you know, he, he becomes a much more uh, dangerous hitter with a guy like Shohei Otani in the lineup. Um, And if you've got Otani batting behind trout and you've still got Pujols in the mix, even though his skills are on the decline, that's a tough part uh, of the batting order to get through. But, Watching Mike Trout play is a real treat.
0: Okay, two more questions for you because we've been at this for about 50 minutes and I actually have to run uptown to go see an apartment. One fun question and then one question that I hope will make you cry before we end. (laughs) The fun question is because we're talking about the Angels, they used to be affiliated uh, with the Arkansas Travelers where we used to go. So, a multiple choice question. And you can answer any one of the three or all three. Your most fun, memorable experience there. One, going to the ballpark in a yellow school bus. Two, when arriving at the ballpark, seeing the owner of the franchise, Bill Valentine, air out the ice vendor with multiple F words. And three, having a lady of the evening knock on your door at the hotel and try to solicit you. (laughs)
1: So I'm supposed to I'm supposed to pick one of those three. You can
0: pick all three if, if those are the most memorable experiences from Arkansas.
1: <laughs> well, well let let me let me start with the third one because the lady of the evening didn't knock at my door. I was this was back in a time when we would fax in game reports after games, and I was going from my room to the uh, main office and I believe it was a La Quinta. Yes, yeah. uh, <laughs> in Little Rock. <laughs> And uh as I was walking to the main office, I passed by a room in which the door was open. Um and I was invited That's right. to yep. join I was invited to join in the festivity. Um so I, I, I did my job, I, I I faxed the report in and I went straight back to my room and I'm like, oh my goodness, what is this? So that wouldn't be the most fun. I think the most fun of those would be the middle one. Um <laughs> Where Bill Valentine, rest his soul, uh, for whatever reason, um, was uh, on a tirade with the Abaga Ice guy. Do you remember the ice service that they had there at Old Ray Winder Field was called Abaga Ice. A-B-A-G-A, Abaga Ice. And apparently the Abaga Ice guy didn't have enough ice or he didn't bring the ice on time. I don't know what sort of transgression you can commit as an ice delivery guy, but this guy has done it. And Bill replete in his suspenders, was airing him out as we were getting off of the yellow school bus. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and we were making our way behind, uh, you know, the home plate concourse there at Ray Winder and uh, going to the visitors clubhouse on the third base side. Now it's funny. And you may remember this. One of our players at the time was Al Ioposic.
0: Anthony Iaposi.
1: Ant, I'm sorry, did I say Al? Oh, oh he would kill me. That's I'm sorry, Anthony Iaposi. <laughs> he would. Anthony Iaposi. Where did I get Al from? Oh, anyway, so Iaposi was our center fielder, and uh, and he's walking, and he was making some comments to Bill Valentine to try to calm him down, and Valentine turned his rage on Iaposi yes. and the rest of the team as we were going in. So, so Anthony was our hitting coach for a few years here in Texas. And I actually brought that story up to him, and I don't <laughs> know why the story came up. And I said, man, do you remember the time that Bill Valentine reamed you out um, because you were trying to calm him down from yelling at the ice guy? And I suppose he didn't remember it at all. That's funny. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, how do you not remember that? <laughs> but any anyway, Post, Post couldn't remember uh, and then he, uh, you know, since he's, uh, left as our hitting coach, uh, if I'm not mistaken now, I believe he's the hitting coach with the Cubs. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and so I, I apologize for calling him Al. you know what? I think I was thinking Al Iafrady. There you go. The former hockey player.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, now that you have your Stanley Cup in Washington. All right. One last question for you. (laughs) you. You mentioned your son briefly in the early going of our chat. And I know how incredibly proud of him you are. He's a swimmer. He's a thespian. He's off to USC, hopefully in the fall. Just talk a little bit about what his accomplishments have meant for you. And again, how proud you are of what he's done uh, at such a young age and and how excited you are for the future for him.
1: Yeah, we are really excited, uh, Brett. And uh, he's, he he will be going to USC right now. They are going to open campus uh, in uh, August and uh, certain classes, certain small classes will be held in person with uh, mask wearing being mandatory. Uh, But yeah, he achieved a lot uh, here in high school, in uh, the Keller area, which is uh, north of Fort Worth. Uh, He was a captain on the swim team his his last couple of seasons, but he was more accomplished in the world of theater. And that's why he's going to uh, USC. He actually won a a state acting award his sophomore year when his school went all the way to the state finals in the uh, UIL one act play competition. Uh, So it was kind of nice for him to be recognized at the highest level. Um, He's won a number of other awards and, and we're really proud of him because uh, in getting to USC, he is going to be in uh, their BFA program in the School of Dramatic Arts, which is a rather um, unique and select uh, program. And in order to get in, and, and you know, we went through this all his senior year, uh, he had a number of auditions all over uh, the country at various schools and his audition at USC, uh, came in Chicago when we went there to have him audition for a number of schools. And, um, so they made their offer very late. We had actually, we were looking at some other schools. We thought he might be going to Texas. We thought he might be going to SMU, but he got this very uh, special offer from USC. And so we couldn't turn it down. We couldn't turn it down. And, uh, we're excited for what the future uh, may hold for him. But, uh, you know, he's, he's done it all on his own. He's got a passion for that. He has a passion for telling stories. Um, and we're very excited for him.
0: Matt, great way to wrap things up. Thanks so much. Uh, Honored to have you on as the first guest on this podcast. Uh, so proud of you and all that you've accomplished. And so happy for you that uh, things have worked out so well in Texas. Give my best to Nathaniel and Estelle. And uh, hopefully not this year, but maybe next year when you guys are in New York again, we'll have the chance to uh, catch up in person.
1: Sounds good. And Brett, uh, I'm honored that you would have me on as your first guest. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. All the best to you.
0: My pleasure. Talk
1: to you soon, my friend. Take care. All right. See you. All right. Bye-bye.